Well, as we celebrate baptisms today, we are reminded that we do so in a very public way, right? And we are able to do that because of the freedom we enjoy. And this hasn't been the case for Christians throughout history. Uh, Even in many parts of the world today, when you get baptized publicly, you run the risk of persecution, abuse, and even giving your life. And so we know that this freedom that we enjoy was made possible uh, and is being purchased, was purchased, and is still being purchased by the sacrifice of our brave men and women in the armed forces. And for that sacrifice, we give them our deepest gratitude. God, we thank you for giving us these men and women who, Lord, fought bravely for our freedoms. We are grateful. We give them honor. But, Lord, we thank you for sending them to us. We thank you for the freedom we have to publicly declare our allegiance to you. God, we would do so even if we didn't have that freedom. But it is precious to enjoy, so we thank you for it. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I mentioned earlier that baptism is a profoundly symbolic act. And what I want to do in our time remaining here is unpack one of those symbols to you uh, in particular. And that is the idea of moving from death to life. And the Apostle Peter, in 1 Peter 3.21, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Peter 3.21 or simply look at the screen. And there's a short little verse here that packs a lot into it. And I want to read this to you. Peter writes, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there is a a lot to talk about here, and we only have maybe 15, 20 minutes. Uh, So I'm really going to answer two questions. The first question is, what does baptism correspond to? What is the this that Peter's talking about? And then we're going to talk about this curious statement about baptism saving you. So the first question, what is the this that baptism corresponds to? Well, in the preceding verses, Peter's talking about the flood, right? How God was going to judge the world for its wickedness. In in that time, there there was sin and rebellion, and so God determined to put an end to that rebellion. He promised, however, that he was going to save Noah and his family through that rebellion. So the this that Peter's talking about is the flood of Noah's day. And so baptism corresponds to this. How so? Okay, back then, there was great sin, rebellion against God. And sin is really just rebellion against God and his commands, wanting to do things your own way. And in Genesis 6, when we read it, it talks about the world was corrupt, right? It was full of violence, full of evil. And God determined to put down that rebellion. He wasn't going to tolerate a world full of sin, but yet he was going to save eight people through that judgment. Today, and in Peter's day and today, things aren't radically different. The world is full of sin, it's full of corruption, and God has promised to deal with that sin. Where do we see that? The Apostle Paul in Acts 17 He's preaching to the crowds of people at at the Areopagus in Athens, and, and he summarizes this well. He says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now, listen to this, now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Why the urgency? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. This is Jesus. 
And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You see, this God is commanding people to repent of their rebellion, to, to stop ignoring him, to stop disobeying him, to follow him. He's patient, but he's commanding people to repent, to come to him. Why? Because he has fixed a day that he will judge the world. And it will be a fair judgment. He's judging them in righteousness. And so the connection between baptism and the flood of Noah's day starts with judgment of sin. Now, sometimes we shy away from talking about judgment. I get it. It's, a, it's, a, it's an uncomfortable topic. When I was preparing my message this week, uh, a lot of times I'll, I'll be writing a, a sermon and I will have earphones on or play loud music. And sometimes I'll just be this praise, big anthems, and I'll be, I'll be singing this, you know, or hearing this music. And it, it's, like a, it's like a soundtrack to my message, you know. And it, sometimes it drowns out noise, but it also like inspires me to say difficult things. You know, so I might be sitting there thinking, oh, you know, it's just kind of moving me. I'm getting excited, I'm getting pumped up. And it's like, preach it, Steve. Tell those people what they need to hear. And I start getting excited. Well, I don't have that soundtrack now. I don't know where Troy went, but I wouldn't mind a big, powerful musical score to help me say maybe some things that are hard. I feel maybe a little bit like an Old Testament prophet about to say hard things that may or may not be received well. God's judgment of sin is one of those difficult topics. I, I, I know that people may not want to even hear about that. Uh, it makes people squirm. Hey, it makes me squirm sometimes when I think about God's coming wrath, his judgment. But I want to preach God's word faithfully. I don't want to preach only part of God's word. We want to preach all of God's word. And when you read the Bible, you can't escape the fact that God has promised to punish sin. Think about when you were, maybe if you were in Sunday school, you came to church your whole life, you kind of were raised in the church. Think about some of the Sunday school stories you heard. I remember thinking about some of the most popular ones this week. I mean, what are they? You know, Jonah, right? And in Nineveh, you have Moses, the plagues, parting of the Red Sea. You have David and Goliath. You have Joshua and Jericho. These are all very familiar Bible stories we teach our children. What do those stories have in common? God's judgment on unrepentant people. God commanding people to obey him and then refusing to follow him. But yet he what? He delivers people through that judgment. Kids don't seem to have a problem with this. Right? You rebel against authority and there's going to be some consequence. Right? You never hear a child ask, why do I get in trouble when I hurt people? Why do I get in trouble when I do bad things? They, they kind of get that sense of justice, that sense of fairness. It's when we get older, right, then we seem to have a problem with it. Right? Some people, they just they don't want to have anything to do with God. They don't like this idea of judgment. Right? They don't like any idea that they're going to be accountable for their actions, that there might be some divine being that's sitting in authority over them that they will have to give an account to. And so they just want to ignore it. Well, they do lots of things. They uh, relativize their sin. Ah, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. You know, that, these guys are way worse than I am. So they, they, be kind of, they begin to relativize their sin. So on the curve, they're on the good end, right? Uh, perhaps they ignore it. They simply say, you know, I don't know if I'm really, I don't really do that stuff. It's not really, it's not really that big of a deal. They justify their sin. 
right? Well, you know, my circumstances being what they are, I kind of had to do this. It's kind of what Don Sanukin talked about last week. They deny their sin. It's, it's, not, it's not wrong. You know, what I do, it, it's not really wrong. And they start acting like the Fonz from Happy Days, right? Remember him? He, he couldn't, uh, he never wanted to admit he was wrong. He couldn't even say the word wrong. He would go to confess and apologize, and he would say, I, I was, he just couldn't get the words out of his mouth. It was impossible for him to even acknowledge he was wrong. So people tried to do this. And then there are people who, who believe these truths. Maybe many of you, you, you say, yeah, I, I know, I get that God's going to judge the world for its sin. I understand that. But you're a little uncomfortable with the idea of judgment, heaven, and hell, because I don't know, maybe it doesn't make God look good. You, you feel the sense of, oh, what will, what will visitors say? What will the world think if we, if we talk about this stuff? Well, I, I think, first of all, um, if we don't talk about it, it's incomplete teaching. right? We want to give people the whole counsel of God. But part of the problem, I think, is we have these, these, uh, these like caricatures of heaven and hell. Right? We kind of make up this, this idea of heaven and hell that's, when you think about it, almost is embarrassing because it's not really reflected in the Bible. What do I mean? Well, there's people who think about heaven and even Christians who think about heaven and they, they envision some world where you're playing like birdie golf, you know, you never miss a shot and it's all free and the most luxurious courses of the world and, and unlimited mulligans and, you know, after your round of golf, you're uh, sipping pina coladas on the beach, you know, Virgin pina coladas, of course. I mean, it is heaven, so we, it's non-alcoholic. But we, uh, you know, and Jesus is doing his thing, and you're doing your thing, and just having this big party, we're all having fun, and God's just a mean God who's letting people out of that fun. Well, that's not the biblical picture of heaven. The biblical picture of heaven is we are praising God for eternity. As Christians, we get to bask in his glory. We get to spend eternity with God, celebrating him, giving him glory singing great songs about him. That's a biblical picture of heaven. If you don't want to worship God in this life for a few years, why would you ever want to worship God in the next life for eternity? And so we get a biblical picture of hell as the punishment for unrepentant sinners. It's not some place where God sends the bad people the people who aren't on his team, and, and they're, they're tortured with these little red guys with pitchforks, and they're saying mean things about them and throwing fire and all these things. That's not a biblical picture of hell. The biblical picture of hell is a place of suffering, right? It's a, it's a place of despair. Why? Because it's, it's a place that is devoid of all things good. Why? Because it's devoid of the source of all things good. And so it is a fitting punishment for someone who wants to live a life without God today. Then they get a chance to live life without God for eternity. And so we want to get this picture of this happy place where we're playing, you know, on jet skis and doing our thing and this place with pitchforks. The reality is, do you want to spend eternity with God praising him or eternity apart from God? That's a biblical picture of heaven and hell. And the waters of baptism, they, they picture God's judgment of unrepentant sinners. See, what we deserve for our rebellion, what we deserve for our sins, is to be held under the water. When you think about it, if you're being baptized, what our sin deserves is for Pat to hold us down there. Right now, it makes for an awkward baptism service, I grant you. 
and probably criminal charges against Pat. But that's what our sin, right? That's the wages of our sin is death. That's what we earn. But that's not what we get. What we get, it doesn't stop there, right? Thank goodness, thank God, literally, the symbolism doesn't stop there. We don't stay under the water. We come out of the water, right? And when we do, it pictures the, the reality that we have passed from God's judgment into life. And for a Christian, we celebrate that. We celebrate the new life we have in him. We have passed through the waters unharmed, just like Noah, with a right standing before God. Again, what we deserve is death. What we get is new life. We just sang about amazing grace that has saved a wretch like me. A wretch. I didn't deserve that grace, but yet God saved me through that judgment. And that's why baptism is such a profoundly positive experience. That's why we, we don't just call this a baptism service. It's a baptism celebration. We, we celebrate that fact of the gospel because it's a glorious picture of the gospel of grace. It testifies to God's saving and his life-changing power that is available to all people everywhere. See, God promises deliverance for those who trust in him. And the people you saw today, they are testifying to God's saving power in their lives. They are testifying to his fulfilled promise. And so when we look at baptism, when we look at the gospel, we see, we see three of God's attributes at work here. Okay? We see his holiness, his justice, and his love. Right? God's holiness and his justice require him to punish sin. It is a just reward for sin, a just punishment for sin. And so God's, God's judgment is, a, is, a, is the just and holy response to his character of holiness. Ah, but it doesn't stop there. While he judges people because of his holiness, he saves people because of what? His love. Right? So, so God can be simultaneously holy and loving. And so we see that pictured in baptism. And this is foundational to the gospel. Right? We have to understand the bad news before we can really grasp and really appreciate the good news of the gospel. If we don't, we just won't, we won't really appreciate, we can't really understand how great the gospel is. If you were alive 60, 70 years ago and you uh, woke up and you, you read a paper on May 2nd, 1945, and the, and the title declared, Hitler is dead. If you didn't know anything about what was going on in the world, I mean, that would be odd, but let's just say you knew nothing about what was going on in the world, you might go, oh, poor guy. What happened? I wonder what happened to him. Oh, bummer. Out of the context, you don't understand. But when you realize what he was trying to do, take over the world, kill innocent people, he was doing all these things, right? You realize the threat that was about to happen, stopping him, was important. And so when you, know, when you know the bad news, you can celebrate the good news. You can recognize, oh, we are free. We're not going to be under this tyrant. And so you can appreciate how profound Hitler is dead, how, how that statement is. We have to right, understand that bad news before we can embrace the good news. We have to understand our need of a Savior before we can embrace our Savior. 
And so we come to the second question of the day. How do we do that? How do we embrace our Savior? Peter says that baptism saves a person. What on earth does he mean by that? Well, a person could read a verse like this, where Peter says, and baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. A person could read a verse like this and, and say, aha, look, baptism, you have to be baptized in order to be saved. Right? So this is kind of like a workspace salvation. Faith plus, plus baptism, maybe some obedience and some other, lots of other things. And ah, it really is a work. It, baptism is a work that you must do to be saved. And so they, they would conclude that. And, you know, there are various churches and, and strands of Christianity that may hold to that belief. But Peter couldn't be any clearer in his disagreement of that. Look what he says. He says it's, it's not the outward physical act, right? It's not as a, 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 a removal of dirt from the body. Right? It's not this liquid water that's washing over you. It's not the act of being dunked that saves you. He's really clear. Baptism saves you. Not that, but the inward reality that happened, that took place. The inward, what, in his words, the appeal to God for a good conscience. It's not the outward act of dunking that saves you. It's that inward act, that appeal to God for a good conscience. What does that mean? Well, what does it mean if you have a bad conscience? Right? What does it mean when you, when you have this bad conscience? You, you know you've done something wrong. Right? You, have this, you have this guilt. You kind of know it. You feel this weight of that guilt bearing upon you. You kind of walk around like, oh, man, I really I messed up here. So you, you feel that pressure. Have you ever felt that way? Has anyone, have you ever felt a bad conscience of your sin? I certainly hope so. Right? I mean, you know what that feels like. Well, think about your relationship with God. Having a bad conscience before God means you walk around and have this sense that God is displeased with your life. This sense that your sin is, is, is dishonoring to him. And so what, what Christianity is, what placing your faith in Jesus Christ is, is an appeal to God for a clean conscience. Say, God, I don't want to live that way anymore. I want to be right with you. I don't want to have this bad standing with you. I want to be in a right relationship with you. That is an appeal to God for a clean conscience. If you have a bad conscience, you only have two options. You ignore it, right? You suppress it. You run from it. You don't want to do anything. You don't have anything to do with that conscience. You pretend those feelings, that weight isn't there. And then over time, you begin to what? Sear your conscience. And now you don't feel anything, any promptings of the Holy Spirit. Or you do what? You appeal to the one you have wronged. You ask for forgiveness. And when you're forgiven, what? This weight is lifted off. The weight of that bad conscience. You know when you've done something wrong and that person forgives you? How does that feel? Freeing. It's liberating. You have this sense that now you're in a right relationship with that person. It's the same thing with God. And baptism pictures that. In that new life we have, we're now clean. We're now free from the bondage of that sin. And so having a pure conscience means we can stand before God in a right relationship with him without the shame, without guilt, with a clean conscience. So when we place our faith in Christ, ultimately we're asking him to forgive us, to wash away our sins, to give us that new conscience. And what made that salvation possible... Peter says, is not just the appeal. I mean, that's one part of it. But that appeal is meaningless 
unless it's grounded in something that can save you. And Peter says that, that appeal right, to God for a clean conscience is based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what he did on the cross, and the fact that he conquered death by being raised from the dead. And so our appeal to God for a clean conscience is based on the resurrection, and it can save us only because it is based on the resurrection. That is the power of the gospel, that Jesus Christ died for our sins overcame death, was raised from the dead, and we can now have new life with him. When Peter concluded his sermon on Mars Hill, we see the response from the crowd. I I read the passage earlier, but uh, then you see this response from people who were listening to him. And he's preaching the gospel. He's giving it everything he can. Uh, uh, Sorry, this is Paul on on Mars Hill. Uh, So we read this in Acts 17. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. You have these three groupings of people. When they hear the gospel, when they hear about the resurrection of the dead, or resurrection of Jesus Christ being able to save you, right? You have three options. The first group, what do they do? They mocked. They have seared consciences. They want nothing to do with God or the gospel. And so if you're in that group, and maybe we have the the spectrum here today. We have the spectrum back then. Maybe we have all the responses here today. Some of you internally, you might go, resurrection. I don't know about that. Well, you are rolling the dice. You are gambling that the resurrection isn't true, that judgment isn't coming. And that is a big gamble. That's one group of people. Some, however, were wiser. They, they thought about this. This was new to them. And so what did they say? We will hear you again about this. We'd like to know more about this gospel you're preaching, about this Jesus you talk about, about this resurrection. We want to hear more about that. And some believed. They understood the life-changing power of the gospel, and they believed in Jesus Christ. And if that's you today, praise God. You can celebrate. You can look at a baptism and you can say, you know, that was me X number of years ago. I was that sinner that was lost. But you know what? God was not content to leave me there. He saved me. And so when I see baptism today, I'm reminded what I deserved was death. But what I received was life. And so I celebrate. And you can too. If you were one of those other groups, if you're a mocker, You say, I don't believe any of this stuff. I encourage you to do business with God. Think about your own conscience. Do you walk around with a clean conscience before God? If you were going to face the creator of the universe, what would you say? How would you give an account for your life? You would be wiser to learn more about this like others, even wiser to ultimately put your faith in Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can save you. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we are, we celebrate the power of your gospel. We celebrate what you did for sinners like us. And Lord, I recognize that there are people even in this room today who maybe haven't embraced that, who haven't given you your due, who still walk around weighed down by sin 
Lord, I ask you to grab them, to draw them to yourself, to liberate them of their sins and the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ through the power of, of the gospel. Lord, we thank you for saving us. We thank you that you not only loved us, but you had the power to do something about it. And so we give you all the praise and all the glory that you alone are worthy of. And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.